The enemies of God. The enemies of God. Who are they? Now, if I ask you, does God have enemies? And I did this, I did this last night with, with uh, my wife. You might think first of Satan. Does God have enemies? Well, yeah, there's Satan. Uh, who popular imagination presents as God's arch enemy. But what about people? What about people? Are there human beings who are God's enemies? With the question put that way, it might conjure up an image of some fiendish villain like Adolf Hitler or perhaps uh, some angry atheist media celebrity sputtering forth with accusations or demeaning jokes or sarcasm on some TV show. Well, the painful reality is that there are far more enemies of God than you could have ever imagined. Turn to Romans 8, verse 7. Romans 8, verse 7. Key scripture that really we should have committed to memory and know how to find and, and go to right away. Romans 8, verse 7, we're informed that the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. And it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. The mind of flesh is hostile toward God, and it doesn't allow itself to be ruled by the law of God, nor is it even able to. So let that sink in. It means that every human being, by their very nature, by the very way that their minds operate, is an enemy of God. Because baby... You were born that way. Got that song stuck in my head after the Super Bowl. Yeah, baby, you were born that way. I, I left my sequined underpants at home, but, you know, you get the drift, right? Now, there's a, a short little uh, thing I want to add in there because some people take that in the wrong direction and they take this whole idea to mean that they have no choice in the matter of how they live their lives and so forth. You were not born a wrongdoer. You weren't born doing wrong. Nor were you born under a penalty for crimes that you had not yet committed. But you were born with a mind made of flesh that cannot and will not submit itself to the laws of God. With that being the case, you and I, quickly wandered off into disobedience to God's laws. And the penalty for that is that you and I were cut off from God and cut off from eternal life. Your whole way of thinking and acting is a state of conflict with your creator, God. And it's a core conflict. It reaches right down into the very essence of who you are. And it doesn't just stay in your head either. You might imagine it all as being some philosophical or spiritual dialogue between you and God. No, it plays out in your life as well. The conflicts that are going on play out because it's a way of thinking and acting that creates war and violence, oppression, all that bad stuff that we see in this world. Divorce, anger, bitterness, and resentment. They're everywhere. Then they even reach into the church of God. How do I, how do you, how do we fix this way of thinking. Is it possible? 
Should we do it? How do I fix this way of thinking? First, your relationship with God, your creator, must be fixed. It starts there. Your relationship with God, your creator, must be fixed. That hostility that, that I started off talking about, that hostile mind. You have to deal with that. You and God are, were, hopefully, in some cases, enemies. Enemies. Until that hostility begins to be addressed. And I use the word begins because we're going to talk about how we get this thing started. Let's get it started. But before God can get to work on you, before he can reach in there and start dealing with that mind that's hostile to him, we have to deal with some other stuff. The very first thing being all that penalty stuff I mentioned earlier, right? Being born that way led you to disobedience to God's law. And there comes with that a penalty, right? That has to be dealt with. God doesn't sweep things under the rug. They're dealt with. He's very upfront about stuff like that. He deals with it. You know, I, 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 I want to avoid conflict. You know, I, or I think I do. God, no, he's going to deal with it. That penalty stuff has to be dealt with because until it is, you're cut off from God. You have no access to his presence. So he can't teach you or do anything with you because you're cut off. Likewise, or actually not likewise, as well as that, you and I were, are cut off from eternal life. We don't have access to that tree of life because of this penalty stuff. It hasn't been dealt with. You're cut off. You can, you know, can't get in. That's what the Passover and baptism are all about. You might think it's a well, is it a little early to talk about that? No, it's not. And I hope I think we're gonna we're gonna talk about it some more. But that's what the Passover and that's what your baptism are all about. Dealing with it. Turn to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, verse 21. Here's some scriptures that kind of say the same stuff. Colossians 1, verse 21 and 22. Once, at one time, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So that thinking and that acting go together. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, or he has reconciled you by his physical body, if you're reading the King James, through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Our hostile relationship with God can be set on a path toward friendship, love, grace, peace, Good stuff like that. It can. It's possible. It can go there. And after that, we can move to fix the way we think, which will also work out in fixing how we deal with one another by dealing with that way of thinking that I'm getting at. But it begins somewhere. And it begins with Christ. Begins with Jesus Christ. He takes that penalty away. Boil it down. He takes that penalty away. Which makes the whole process begin. It is a process. It doesn't stop with that. But it begins with Jesus Christ. And his personal sacrifice for you. Such that, when it's done, or when it's accepted, if you will, you are 
no longer cut off from God. You're no longer excluded from his presence. And that that free access, that open door, if you will, that opens up all kinds of wonderful experiences, opportunities, and growth. Trials, suffering, all that good stuff. (laughs) No, we're talking about how we address that mind that's hostile. Hostile to God. It just has a wrong way of thinking that not only affects our relationship with God, but it affects our relationship with one another. But we start fixing it with Christ. And we start fixing it by reconciling to God. Romans 5, verse 8. 8 through 10, if you would. Romans 5, verse 8 through 10. God demonstrates his own love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Indicating this process. There's going to be more in store. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God is the peacemaker here. In every relationship, when a relationship's got a problem, right? Someone's got to make the first move, right? Someone has to get it started. God is the peacemaker. He is the peacemaker. He makes the first move. There's various ways that people describe this. To me, that's a a very important part of understanding his grace. He makes the first move, as we just read. While you were still hostile. Imagine going in and trying to resolve a conflict with someone. Let's say you're at work and they're hostile. Or at, at church and they're hostile. That's not easy, is it? No. God does that. He makes the first move and he comes out peacemaking. Making peace, reconciling with you. And I mentioned earlier, you know, that some of these concepts play out in our day-to-day lives, how we live among one another. He sets a great example for us to follow. He sets a great example for us of proactive reconciliation, which we can and actually must. That's a different subject that I'll get into in future. But that we can and must use to repair and maintain our human relationships. Matthew 5, verse 9. Matthew 5, verse 9. Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Cool. It also shows us God's goal for us is that we too become peacemakers. And you know, we want to get there, but again, we start off with Jesus Christ. And we start off with God making the whole reconciliation thing start. Right? We become then peacemakers in our own right. We take on this whole idea of making peace and reconciling to our fellow members, our fellow co-workers within our families, and so forth, in our neighborhoods, among our friends, and so on. Now, I've mentioned this way of thinking, and I suppose that's somewhat abstract. Now, a way of thinking. Well, trying to describe the all the things that go on in the human mind is clearly beyond the scope of what we can accomplish today. Uh, first of all, we don't have enough time, and even if we did have enough time, I don't think we have enough. I don't know enough about it. But I, I have a few things that I, I want to put out there. The way of thinking, how can we identify the way of thinking? Let's put it that way. How can I, how can I identify this way of thinking, this crazy way of thinking? Uh, 
What is it? How can I see it myself? How will I know when I'm doing it? The way of thinking that leads to hostility with God and conflict with others as well uh, is built on top of our natural needs and desires. So sometimes they seem normal. Well, that's just normal. That's just the way I am. That's the way people are. Yeah, baby, I was born that way, right? They're built on our natural needs and desires, but done in a way that bring really bad results. Okay? Um, let's start off with the first one being pride. Okay, pride. A big one. Again, that could be an entire message or series. But pride. Pride, well, what is pride? Uh, an exaggerated view of yourself. Right? thinking that you're bigger than you really are, more important than you really are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How about this? To see the rightness or wrongness of any given situation or relationship by how it affects me. Well, how does this affect me? What's in it for me? How are others treating me? Rather than thinking, well, how am I contributing to this problem or this situation? How am I treating other people? It's a focus, pride, it's a focus on how are people treating me? What's happening to me and how is this affecting me? You know it's in there. <laughs> the only acceptable outcome for this way of pride, this proud mindset, is that I get what I want. That's the only way pride is going to be satisfied. I get what I want. At some point, you know, you'll all just come around to my way of thinking and everything will be right then. Because, you know, of course I'm right. I win. It's the only acceptable solution. But where does that leave the other person in the equation? They have pride too. They're actually thinking the same things you are. So you're going to bump heads, aren't you? Whether that's with your fellow man or woman, or whether it's with God. All right, number two. I've got four of them here. Number two, and in some ways these are variations on a theme, but they do have their unique characteristics. Emotional neediness. An emotional need to have other people heal me, fix me, make me feel better. I need you to make me feel better. That's your job, to make me feel better. Rather than to take the process of reconciliation into our hands and do something about it, think of it, at, uh, think of it like a, a playing a game of chicken with someone. You know, who's going who's gonna to say sorry first? I need you to fulfill me and make me feel good. You have to come to me and say, I'm sorry. Then I'll feel good to fill up my emotional tank and so forth. And you put this together with point one about pride and it's a very bad mixture. You're at a standoff because no one's going to come forward and do anything. Okay, number three. Number three of the four. I'm going to call this the quest for happiness. The quest for happiness. And it's, it's a topic that uh, I see a lot. I think it's a huge topic. And we have a, so it's one of those phrases that's written into the American Constitution. We have a right to be happy. Well, pursue happiness. Right? But I think a lot of us construe it as, well, I have a right to be happy. If I'm not happy, things are wrong. If I'm not happy... This isn't working because I'm not happy. So something's fundamentally wrong with the situation because I'm not happy. The quest for happiness. The problem there is that I think a lot of times, not all times, but a lot of times, we're looking for other people and sometimes even God. I think actually it's a big problem. Looking for the other party to provide us with feelings of happiness or emotional satisfaction, uh, a sense of stability and justice, whatever. 
you fill me up. And it's a problem because people don't live up to your expectations. And if you're looking for happiness, and I'm thinking, well, you're going to make me happy, right? Well, you're going to fall short of my estimation, what it really takes to make me happy. Because I'm pretty much a bottomless pit. You're never going to be enough. There's not enough of you to fill me. This can't happen. People will fall short of our expectations, and we end up in conflict, resentful. Yeah, well, my wife just doesn't love me enough, or the husband, whatever. And conflict, because you're just you're not doing your part. You're not filling me up with, with happiness and satisfaction. Think of the love languages example. Uh, I know this is a little different, but um, so... With the love languages, you, let's say, express love through gifts, right? I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's gifts and words of praise and all these different ways that people give and receive love, okay? Okay, so you are a person who expresses love through gift giving, okay? And so you're expecting and you want gifts, all right? You're expecting gifts. You need to give me gifts to make me feel good, right? But the other party, let's say it's your wife, she expresses love through acts of service, right? So she starts showing you love in a way that's important and meaningful for her. And you're sitting there. So when do the gifts start showing up? I'm not feeling the love. You're missing each other, right? Because you're looking for this other person to fill you up. You're sitting there. I'm waiting for these gifts. Bring them on. I'll be here. I'll be here tomorrow, too, waiting for my gifts. Show me the love. Now, the emotional needs are legit. Okay, emotional needs are legitimate. Like I said earlier, these things are built on a foundation of natural needs and natural desires. But it's what we do with them and how we play them out that becomes the problem, starting with that biggie, pride. It's just how we seek to fulfill them that can drive conflict. Because we start to see this other person as like an obstacle in the road for us getting what we need and what we want, right? Towards our personal fulfillment. Which only comes by getting our needs filled. And even, even God, if you think about it, honestly, God is not what I expected. You know, you're not what I expected, God. I was expecting more gifts, you know, literally, seriously. Think about it, folks. Yeah, you know, this isn't working out. I, 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 uh, where are the gifts? I want to see love the way I want to see love, and nothing else really works for me. Uh, realize that's kind of, the, you know, it's a funny example, but there's some truth in that. God isn't always what you expected. And so you could say, well, God, you're just not making me happy. And that's your job, right? That's God's job to make me happy, right? That's what religion and the Bible and all this other stuff is all about. I mean, seriously, friends, I think that's what a lot of people walk around on this planet thinking, that God's job is to make us happy. And when we're not happy, well, then God, uh, no, he either is not there. He's not there because he's not making me happy. Or he's a, he's a, he's a He's a false god, or he's, I don't like him, or whatever, because he's not making me happy. He's not filling my needs. The fourth I have in my my four, the fourth of four, control issues. Clearly, I mean, this could be a, you know expanded upon quite a bit. Control issues. Uh, we tend to get, uh, I think, an enhanced sense of personal security, uh, emotional security, or maybe it's just ego tripping when we feel like we're in control of a situation. Um, I think that we are wired to seek control. If you go back to the Genesis account, I think it indicates that human beings, both men and women, were designed to have dominion, right? We were designed to have dominion over the physical creation. So it's kind of, you know, we're born that way, right? Control issues, but what do we do with them? We try and control other people, right? We try and control other people or relationships, and that's when things start to get messy. 
our life experience is full of things that we can't control, right? We can't control uh, who our parents are, uh, our nationality. Uh, we can't control the weather. We can't control the economy. Can't control our neighbors and his crazy cat. I can't control these things. We don't get to control much in life, so what we can control, maybe, you know, your, your girlfriend or your husband or whatever, you do seek to control. Right? To compensate for all this other stuff that you can't control. Hmm. Control, if you think back to what I started saying about control issues, control is a way to pr protect and possibly project our deeply rooted sense of who we are. But it's kind of off base because it's working with all this pride. Variations on a theme. Another, pro another problem with control issues is everybody else around you is trying to do the same thing. So if I'm trying to control things to make me feel better, and you're trying to control things to make you feel better, boom, 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 right? We're going to have problems. Okay, let's get back to the central issue, which is conflict. and Conflict with God. Because I mentioned earlier, fixing all this stuff begins with fixing our relationship with God. And I think all those four, all those four play into our conflict with God. Think about it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time showing you how each one of them works on a spiritual level. But the, those emotional issues, they, they, they play out in our interpersonal relationships, how we get along with one another, okay? Uh, in our marriages, at work, in our friendships, uh, with our kids, among our brothers and sisters in church, and I think that this, this short list of um, issues, if you want to call it that, and a little, you know, just the small amount of elaboration that I put on them are, I'm going to call it like a deeper probe. They're our first little probe into the mind of the flesh and how it thinks and how that would create an opportunity for hostility with God himself. I mean, we clearly, <laughs> I don't think that we have to live too long or look too far to see hostility in our relationship with one another, do we? But you can take that and you can say, you know, that's the way I think, that's the way I am, that's how I, I operate, I do that kind of stuff. Well, you, you do it to God too. And it creates conflict. The pride, the need to get rather than to give, the need to be in control. These are the mechanics, the workings, the, you know, the cogs that spin around of how our conflict with God develops. And the central theme of all those ideas, which I think was pretty obvious, is I, me, my, mine. It's all about me. What I consider to be just, what I consider to be good, what I think is necessary. Well, those all, where do they, where do these ideas come from? They come from within. They come from me. We define them ourselves. Well, what matters is what I think is good. What matters is what I think is just. What matters is what I think is necessary. Well, that puts us in conflict with God. Because we're not of the same opinion. And in a sense, we're competing with God for that very high-level decision-making, that high-level priority-making. We look at our relationships and we say, well, what's fair or good, what's necessary, and so forth is you know, based on how they satisfy me. How they fill my emotional needs, my ego needs, and so forth. Turn to Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14. Verse 12. You 
could also go to Proverbs 16, verse 25. It says basically the same thing if you want to take notes. Uh, Proverbs 14, verse 12. Another great scripture that is good to know, carry around in the back of your mind and bring out at the appropriate moments. There is a way. And I'll add this. I'll add to this. There's a way of thinking. But there's a way that appears to be right. But in the end, leads to death. Makes sense to think that all these intangibles, you know, love, justice, necessariness, what has to happen, are based on what I think, because of course I'm right. And there's a way, it seems right to me, it seems right to me, this is all I've got to go on, right? I'm left on my own. If that's all I've got, if I don't have God's word and I'm left on my own, it seems right, doesn't it make sense? But the scriptures say, yeah, but the end of that is death. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be executed because you're not thinking properly. Not exactly. Look, you can follow this way of thinking. You can live this way. Clearly, we do. People live this way. We go about our daily lives. We think this way. We have these kind of interactions with God and man. And you'll live your allotted number of years and then you'll die but it doesn't lead to anything everlasting because you're cut off you're cut off from God and remember you're also cut off from everlasting life so if you live your three score and ten is it three score and ten and then you're gone you've got nothing to look forward to unless we Fix this misunderstanding, no, this conflict with God. Genesis 3, verse 6. <coughs> Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman, that's Eve, of course, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. Eve bit into this fruit, which I hope you know, I hope you know the, uh, the account. She was told, no, don't do that. Do not eat that fruit. Oh, oh I'm going to go and eat the fruit. Why? Why did she eat the fruit? Well, look, I don't, I, maybe we'll have to ask Eve at some point after resurrection. <clears throat> but what we do have there in the scriptures is that it appealed to the senses, right? It appealed to the natural, normal senses on one level. Uh, it was nice looking. And everybody wants to bite into a nice piece of fruit that, you know, oh, man, that's great. It's from California and everything. It looks great. Um, it held forth the promise of good sensations on the tongue and a nice full feeling in the tummy. It was going to appeal to the, the flesh, the person, right? It looked good. It was going to satisfy my needs, right? But there's more packed into the verse. Of course, there's more packed into that verse. The prospect of eating it against God's specific instructions not to Appealed to what? Well, it appealed to something. I'm going to give it a name. And there's lots of things we could call it. Let's just call it self-determination. Or I'm going to decide. I will decide what is right for me based on my priorities. You know, what my tummy wants, what my tongue wants, what my eyes see. Or also to determine things for myself, right? My needs, my desires. So the instructions might be good, but I am going to do the opposite of what I'm told just to show my independence. Because I can. And anyone, anyone who has ever raised a child knows that that's how it works. Um, should I tell our story? No. <laughs> okay, Julia says I can. 
I've got this, we have this memory of our daughter, Julia, who was told, do not touch that. We had a rolling cart where we kept wine bottles on and stuff like that. Do not touch that cart. And she was, she was standing there and Laura said, don't touch the cart. She'd look at her mom. And she touched the cart. It's, it's, you're born that way, baby. You are born that way. You are born to try and determine things for yourself. I am going to decide. I will decide what's right and wrong. I will decide what is right and what is wrong. And that is why the mind of flesh is the enemy of God. Anyone, anyone who sets themselves up as the decider of what is good and what is evil, you know, whether it is good to touch the wine bottles or bad, or whether it's good to touch this forbidden fruit or, or, or not, anyone who says, well, I'll be the one to decide that, not you, God, I will decide that. Anyone who does that is putting themselves in the place of God. They're, take, they're basically entering into a situation where they're in competition with God. I'll decide that. God says, no, I, I, I decide what's right and what's wrong. No, I'll decide. Conflict, trouble. You're not on the same page. Okay. Hostility. That's, that's the hostility that we're talking about. Hostility to God. Can't, can't God handle competition, though? I mean, look, seriously. Can't you handle it? Can't you handle competition? Why the conflict? Why can't God just let it be? Let it go. Let it flow. Why not? Why doesn't God do that? Now, those first humans we read about, they, they took the prerogative to know good and evil. And we all have that same problem. A mind that will not and cannot remain subject to the commands of God. Our thoughts and our actions build on a foundation, I think, well, they're built on the foundation of natural needs and desires, but they build with pride and they build with selfishness. And they create this wonderful structure that we call me. Really is an idol if you think about it. And it's there instead of God to replace God himself. And it leads to disastrous results as we see in our world at large. The war, the injustice, the oppression, the divorce, the bitterness, the broken friendships, and all that bad stuff. The problem, the reason that God just doesn't let it be and let it flow is with God there is no mixture there will not be a mixture of good and evil with God no not having it God does not want those bad things that you bring along with you in his presence which is why we end up being cut off he does not want those bad things that you and I bring along with ourselves in his uh, they have no place in his plan for an eternal future. There's no room for eternal conflict in God's plan. There's no room in our eternal relationship with him for ongoing hostility. There's no place for alternative lifestyles in eternity. So, until we deal with that, we are excluded from the presence of God and from partaking of eternity until we can admit it and start dealing with it. So, changing our human nature. Turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. It says there that we're egged on by this prince of the power of the air 
but it's all in there from the get-go. It's all in there. All that hostility is baked into the cake from the get-go. But I'm also, and you're also, designed to have a relationship with God. You are designed to have a relationship with God. And it's going to be, it should be, will be, a positive relationship. I'm currently, or at one point, fundamentally hostile. Furthermore, excluded from his presence and excluded from his plans for eternity. So a person is stuck because of the way they think. Uh, what the scriptures said there, the desires and thoughts. Well, has a lot to do with what, what's going on in that head of yours. And then because of what I've done, what we have done as a result, those thoughts lead to actions. But I have this desire built in to have this relationship with God. I want God to love me and help me. But I also want to do all this stuff uh, according to the way I think it should go. Um, what works for me, what seems right to me. You know, we talked about pride, control issues, uh, desire for God to make me happy. Let's do it this way, my way. So we have this broken relationship, if you will. And we're in conflict. As it said, we're children of wrath, by nature deserving of wrath. And something has to change. Something has to change. Now, most humans, most of humanity, really see the answer as, well, they want God to change. That's, that's how we'll fix this. God will change. Okay? God's going to change to suit us. God will change. That's how the mind of flesh works. You know, we're going to move it. We're going to fix it by moving it over to my side. Do it my way. Well, that's how we'll fix it. God, why don't you just, like, you change your law to suit me? Uh, loosen up on those sex rules, you know, to match my desires, you know? Can't you be flexible? And that Sabbath thing, what's the big deal? Can't we just, like, change it around a little bit to fit my schedule? I don't see this as being so hard. Just come around to, you know, make it all work for me. Fulfill my needs, emotional, ego, uh, physical needs. Everything on my terms. Change is going to happen, folks. Change is going to happen. Change is going to happen in a completely different manner. It's going to be better. It's going to be more positive, And it's going to be everlasting. So changes on the horizon. Let's, uh, we're in Ephesians. Let's start in verse 4. It says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And it's by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We've already looked at this, but we'll look at it again. God makes the first move. God is the great reconciler. He makes the first move, but also the right move. He could have made the first move and said, you know, you got a point there. I'm going to change the law to suit you. He could have made the first move that way, couldn't he? Yeah, I think I've been too strict on that kind of stuff. No, God makes the first move, but he makes the first move, the right move as well. To reconcile us to himself and to bring peace to the relationship that we have. I mentioned it earlier, but I think a big part of understanding the grace that's talked about there is God taking the initiative in a positive, uh, life-building way, meaningful, headed somewhere that makes sense. And it also establishes a wonderful model for us to follow in our own human relationships. 
And I'm going to speak more about that in the future. The Passover is a couple of, it's like eight weeks or more away. So we'll have time to flesh that out. So we're guilty, as we read here in Ephesians, you know. Guilty, guilty as charged, hostile. And God says, let's fix this thing. We're going to fix it. He does it through Jesus Christ. Christ's sacrifice starts that process. And again, that's the process that the Passover and baptism kick into action. Now, for those of us who are already baptized, the Passover is a reminder and a renewal of what has already begun. And for those of us who are not, it's a goal. And it's something that we should think about if we're looking for solutions and answers and a positive direction in our lives. Christ's sacrifice cleans us up and it allows us back into the presence of God. Think about the Genesis account. What happened? They were kicked out. They were cut off. And they were not allowed into the presence of God because all that cruddy stuff that you have has no place in the presence of God. But through Christ, you can come into the presence of God. And once that happens, he can begin to teach you and me to build a new mind in us, that mind of Christ, which is very different from the one that we were born with. We were banished from his presence because of, not just because of what we did, but because of the way we think, our pride, our dishonesty, uh, evil things that we think in our minds, and, of course, our disobedience to his law. We were banished from his presence. We were cut off from the tree of life. We had no access to that life force. That's what the tree of life is. It's not just some, you know, crazy image or idol that we think about. It's talking about life, that life force. We had no access to that. And that was, that was our penalty. But you have access to that life force through baptism, through the events of the Passover. That's all been opened up to you. You are back in the presence of God and you have access to that source of life. You commit to change. You want to become baptized. You receive the Holy Spirit. Because that's the life force. The Holy Spirit of God is that life force. To remove the penalty, what God and Christ did not overturn the principles of judgment and justice. Law is not abolished. Rather, what happens is the penalty that was on us is paid. Paid by Jesus Christ. And his death satisfies that need for justice in the universe. Simply that evil deeds be punished. Do you really want to live in a universe where evil deeds are not punished? Do you? No, I hope not. <laughs> that doesn't go away. Evil deeds are punished. But the only way for it to work and us to still have access to that life is the sacrifice and penalty paid for by Jesus Christ. Justice is satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ. But, but that change of status that we experience, we're no longer guilty, we're innocent, and doesn't change our human nature. So how does the human nature change? Well, I'm not going to launch into a whole new sermon. We're going to talk about that more at length. But your change will be the result of a lifelong process that's made possible and starts with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Turn to Romans 10. Romans 10. Verses 14 and 15. Paul writes here, How then can they, people in general, people at large, how can the world, how can they call on the one that they have not believed in? 
And how can they believe in the one that they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace and glad tidings. The NIV leaves out the gospel of peace part, but it's there in the Greek. You'll see it if you're reading the King James. The gospel of peace and glad tidings. Well, first, you've got to be told. Simple. Okay, how does my human nature change? Well, Romans 10 tells us, well, you've got to be told. You have to receive the gospel of peace. And that that is a big part of what the church and its ministry is here for. That's what the church does for you. Satisfy your needs. <laughs> That's what the church does. The church spells it out for you. We teach. But the will to act upon it and do is yours. Romans 8. We're in Romans. Go back to chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Here we read, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. And this is the part that comes right after that verse we started on, the hostile mind. But you don't have, are not to have that hostile mind, right? You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Because of righteousness. The Holy Spirit works in you, leading you to righteousness. Uh, big subject. I could you know, spend a whole hour or two or three talking about that. A conviction of what is right. What is right? The courage to do it. And the commitment to stick with it, to endure. Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2. So we want that Holy Spirit in us, working, making this happen. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since the children, that's us, the children of God, have flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus Christ, still, sorry, he too shared in their humanity, became human, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, the faithful, if you will. And for this reason, verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. There's a lot in there. It could be elaborated on quite a bit. But through Jesus Christ, God seeks to understand. That's what I'm going to take out of that. Through Jesus Christ and his life, God seeks to understand. Of course, that's part of getting along with people, right? Reconciling the people to seek to understand. So he can better help you along the way. You do not have to be an enemy of God. You do not have to remain an enemy of God. For his part... God wants to count you as his friend. But to make that happen, we have to deal with some obstacles that are in the way. As I mentioned earlier, it all begins by reconciling to God through Jesus Christ. The mind of flesh that is hostile to God, that's one of the obstacles. The way of thinking that leads to conflict with both God and man. And also that unpaid penalty that puts this barrier between you and God and the tree of life. You do not have to remain God's enemy.